Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. We're Needy in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 134, recorded on October 1st, 2020. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needypintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. This is officially the fourth quarter of like the worst year in recorded history. So for, for some reason, we made it this far. Since we did that, these are the headlines that we are going to be talking about today. We, of course, have an update on Intune, as always, since Simon is with us. And he'll be talking also about Jamf. And uh, apparently he's been talking again. The Arc-enabled SQL Server is now in public preview. We're going to be talking about Patrick's opinion of insane, amazing smart narratives in Power BI. <laughs> Somebody managed to get their hands on the Windows XP source code. And then we have a bit of a, a hand grenade in the shape of the new Surface units. And some interesting new things coming out for the Windows on ARM. So let's dive straight into it. Simon, what have you done? Damn it, Simon. <laughs> and, and speaking about Damn it, Simon, uh, that was actually one of the comments in the chat for the session I delivered yesterday at Jamf Nation User Conference, or JNUC, which is the world's biggest Apple conference. Uh, in, in, in usual case, they uh, host that in Minneapolis uh, in the US. Uh, but this year, as with every other event, it's virtual. But... On the flip side, it's been a very, very good experience speaking there, and the production has been amazingly good, I must say. So I did my recorded session yesterday, but I, uh, of course, attended and answered questions, and I spoke about the uh, Jamf and uh, Microsoft partnership. And for the ones who doesn't know, uh, Jamf is an Apple-only management solution, so they have some specific solutions for schools and healthcare, but they are most famous for their Jamf Pro or the former Casper Suite, which is claimed to be the config manager of Apple management, which I definitely can concur with. Uh, so it started off this Tuesday with the keynote where it was actually quite interesting since Jamf is Apple only. They only manage Apple devices, everything from Apple TVs to MacBooks and uh, iOS devices. But the keynote were delivered in practice by Jamf, Apple, and Microsoft together. In terms of news, and since this is a Microsoft podcast, let's start with that, and then I'll talk about my session. Uh, they introduced a couple of new features for Office on the Mac, most of them, I would say, are things that we already are used to uh, from a Windows perspective, but they are really introducing a lot of AI capabilities on macOS especially, which is cool. They also introduced some new integrations with Jamf Connect, and Jamf Connect is the ability to sign in using Azure AD credentials on your MacBook. And that will now, in an upcoming release, support passwordless authentication. So where you can use Face ID and Touch ID on your iOS device to unlock your Mac. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it, it, it's actually 
a slightly better experience than Windows, I must claim. Uh, but that is not new. I had that on my Mac when I was running a Mac back in 2015, I think. Yeah, but not with Azure AD. No, definitely not with Azure AD. Mm-hmm. That is super cool. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. And they also introduced, and this is probably one of my favorite features. So the integration between Yamf Pro, which is the leader in Mac OS management, uh, and Microsoft Intune have previously only uh, been there for Mac OS with compliance policies. So you can manage a device with Jamf Pro, but report compliance to Microsoft Intune. That's now being extended to iOS devices. So you can choose to manage your entire Apple fleet with Jamf if you have specific purposes and reasons to do that, which Intune can't fulfill for you but still use conditional access and compliance policies from Microsoft Intune on the same device. Simon, you were probably at Atea when we hired the the guy that came from the furniture company who was going to be doing Mac on, on Atea. And back then it was difficult, shall we say, to get Macs into an AD yeah. and, and manage them as, as they should. And We've pretty much have have had a hard time since. Would you say that this is the the missing link or the missing piece of the puzzle to really get Max into a complete Microsoft environment? Yeah, I, I would say so. And I actually even were quoted from my session that you should be using Yamf if you want equality between the management and user experience for your Mac OS devices and your Windows devices because that combination can really enable you to use the same credentials to sign into both platforms. You can manage them the same way. You can secure them in the same way, but still specialized for each operating system and ecosystem, really. Very, very cool. Yep. Uh, And my session were about that partnership and how to choose and integrate those different solutions. And I'm, I'm not sure if the numbers are official, so I will just say that I had an amazing turnout I'm really, really pleased, um, and a lot of really good questions. And they have—they are still coming in, actually, since you can view the session on demand. I think you even can register to review the sessions um, now, if you weren't registered when the event was ongoing. But uh, it was a great experience, and I was really pleased with the recording, actually. Uh, and uh, like I said, it's it's been a very professional experience all the way as a speaker. So great fun. Uh, and in addition, I just wanted to mention a couple of new features to Microsoft Intune in general, where we uh, especially have the ability to now, with Tenant Attach, run scripts from the admin center. So where you now can use the online portal to run PowerShell scripts on your Config Manager managed devices, which includes servers. So from a web-based console, you can run PowerShell scripts uh, on any device that's managed by Config Manager. And in addition, we have some new capabilities to corporate-owned device with a work profile for Android, where you can configure more settings in terms of passwords, but also what you can configure for that um, entire device. So disable the use of the camera, disable screen capture and such. And the last one, but not least, we can now analyze our on-prem GPOs 
and get the result back for how to configure the same settings using MDM policies, using group policy analytics. Ooh, hello. That is something that I am very keen to use pretty much tomorrow. Yeah. Where where do I get hold of that? It's already available in preview in your endpoint manager admin center console. So it's basically uploading a report and it will show you if there are deprecated or non-supported settings, but also which settings it's the is the equivalent of that group policy setting. But like I always say, you should always try to start from a blank sheet of paper when you configure MDM policies. But if you have some settings that you really want to migrate but can't figure out which they are, this is a great addition to move to a more modern management of your Windows devices. Here, here. Really good news. Yeah. <clears throat> and also, that would uh, mean pretty much that you take that piece of administrator's management today, which yeah. they are managing the settings, and move them over to the group that actually supports the end users. Yes. So they Correct. can take care of that. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a shift in workload as well. Yeah, and I would also say that it's a security improvement since you don't need to grant any kind of rights to like AD usage rights to the ones that are managing group policies. And it's much, much easier to differentiate who is able to configure settings with group policy uh, and MDM policies. Uh, do you know if there's a new role in Azure AD for this as well, like GPO editor or something like that? No. Or is it just enough to have the Intune role? Yeah, you should have the Intune role. You don't have need to have any Azure AD usage rights at all. It's, it's all configured in Intune. Yep, cool. Yeah. And speaking about modern management, SQL Server now sort of is enabled for modern management. Huh? Oh, you're talking... You did a segue. I tried my best. Wow. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm speechless, and that does not happen very often. Anyway, well done, Simon. Uh, so we were at Ignite last year, and... It was pretty much one, one word was touted over and over and over again. And that was ARC. Yeah. What is ARC? Well, ARC is a way to to connect to and manage your on-prem environment. Or if you're not talking about on-prem, another cloud environment. Basically just getting that into the management backplane of Azure. And now the ARC-enabled SQL Server is in public preview. So that means that I can have my SQL servers that I have on-prem on VMs or on bare metal, doesn't really matter, or in another cloud, and I can connect those to the Azure backplane. So why would I want to do that? Well, for starters, you now have a global inventory of all your SQL instances across any kind of, of hosting infrastructure. But that's just a part of it because now you suddenly have access to Azure Security Center because Azure Security Center will give you a comprehensive report about vulnerabilities in your SQL servers. And it's going to give you real-time security alerts for threats to SQL Server and the operating system that is running on underneath the SQL Server. You also have access to Azure Sentinel, so you can investigate threats in the SQL Server. And you can also check the health of the SQL Server configuration and see what kind of remediation recommendations uh, you have due to Azure Log Analytics. And the only thing you need basically is the connected machine agent that you install on your server. And boom, Bob's your uncle and you're off 
in into um, Azure Arc. It is super, super cool. And that also means that your actual data can stay on-prem, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. The The only thing that moves to the cloud is the instrumentation. Yeah, and I think that's, um, again, it, it shows the investment in the hybrid cloud, and especially in, in customers that, for whatever reason, don't want or can move their workloads to the cloud, but still want to leverage the capabilities of the cloud management and especially security, like you mentioned. Definitely, and and the security aspect has been, well, horribly lacking on-prem because the cloud gives you abilities that you cannot neither easily or at all duplicate on-prem simply due to the sheer size of the cloud and, and the the number of endpoints and so on and so forth. But but let me then ask you a question, which is I'm quite interested in since I work with security. Have security at any point been the focus for database administrators? That is a super good question. And it is also a bit of a Pandora's box because it, it depends entirely on who you're asking. Yeah. If you're asking me, security is absolutely paramount. Yeah. But... I'm going to go ahead and say that a lot of DBAs don't think that much about security. There there are specific people in the industry that does, for instance, SQL Server um, penetration testing. Yeah. They are not fun to meet because they, they are good at what they do. And then SQL Server, I mean, it is the holy grail. There you have all your, your super important data. So yeah. yes, it's super important to have security in your SQL Server. Yeah, and especially like the, the things you can notice if you view how the data and the server is being used from an EDR and um, Sentinel point of view. Like you can notice things that are out of order there, which wouldn't be suspicious from a malware point of view. So I think that it's, it's great to see that they are investing in SQL Server security and uh, investigation really. Definitely. You're you're going to be surfacing things that you, as you say, you cannot see by just looking at that box. Cool. And when it comes to seeing things that I was about to say aren't <laughs> there, but that's not what I meant. Um, so Patrick Leblanc of, of Gynacube, they, uh, or it was both Patrick and, and Adam, they had an interview with Justina of the, the product team. And Justina works on for instance, the smart narratives. And a smart narrative is a new kind of visual that you put into Power BI. And I'm, I'm going to explain it and see what your re reaction is. Because say you have a a line chart or, or a bar chart or whatever showing you data. You need to be literate. You need to understand what you're looking at because, well, not everybody instinctively understands a chart. But what if you had some text that said uh, the the average age of this state is, and then you have a number. And depending on what you click, let's go for Arizona or let's go for New Hampshire, this number changes, but the text is still there. So it automatically creates this dynamic metric that you then attach to your static text. So that is a way for people they're not first in the, the visual to instantly grasp what is the visual about and what does it really show. What's your opinion on that one? It sounds like a very useful feature, actually. And I, I, I Googled it since 
like explaining a visual have been like I think you do a great job of doing it, but I need to see it to really understand mm -hmm. it. And um, I think this is a like in in Office we have natural language interpretation, uh, which you'd have in Power BI as well, like like we have said a couple of times. This is the sure. opposite. So where you take a visual natural language, <laughs> yeah, the the <laughs> oh no, I I won't finish. Yeah, I was just about to say <laughs> so. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but the the other way around where you use, for the people, like you said, that can't or have a hard time interpreting a visual, you can actually get that support from a text as well, which will probably enable a lot, of, a lot more people to understand the data that's being shown to them. Exactly. And while I can just echo... Patrick's opinion. He he called this insane amazing. And I have to agree because that is super cool. It's I mean it, it's deceptively simple. It's just yeah. this thing that goes, yeah, of course I want to have that. But it is very, very difficult to make it work. And and Justina and her crew has made an amazing job of doing exactly that. It's in preview. It um, of course has a, a number of limitations. Uh, but I recommend you all to look at the Gynecube uh, interview with Justina because that'll tell you everything. I'm going to link that in the show notes as well. Yeah, the, the blog is actually quite interesting as well for the ones oh, yeah. who rather would like to read it rather than view it. But I can't see that it support Finnish as of yet. Not? Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. All right, so what about the source code for Windows XP and a few other Windows operating systems were stolen or leaked, whatever you want to call it. Did you do it, Tony? Uh, sorry, I'm innocent on that one. But uh, the, the leak itself was like 43 gigs of data or code, uh, ranging all the way from MS-DOS 3.3 all the way to Windows XP. I'm not sure it, it, if it was all the operating systems there, but some between those lines. So some poor schmuck is probably sitting on the Windows ME source code. Yep, true story. Top tip, don't compile that. No, but that was actually one of the points, because this was just a rumor at first. But then it showed that there was actually a developer who could do a compile of the server 2003 and actually install it on a virtual machine so it seems to be legit and and as we were talking about before starting the recording what kind of insane system do you need to compile these things because i can just see this happening on a, on a laptop and then this a few minutes later kind of thing and it takes days to compile i'm curious we need to find some some dev who can tell us just how long does it take to compile one of these things? Are we looking at one day, a week? I don't know. We should be able to find someone who can help us with that. Some of the current Windows teams that can tell us about how, how long it takes to compile Windows 10. Yeah, and on their machines, it's probably going to be 15 minutes. It depends on if you have flat rate in Azure or not. Oh. <sighs> That's the name of this episode, flat rate in Azure. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and the, the reason why this is important is, of course, that by 
examining that code, you probably will be able to find some quite serious vulnerabilities in those old operating systems, but also in more current operating systems, since a lot of that source code is probably still being used. Yeah, that's that's probably the major risk here, that if they have reused bits of code here and there, then there might be patch Tuesdays coming real fast. Also remember that Microsoft haven't confirmed the leak, and they probably won't. No, but like I said, the code has still been compiled and already installed, so it's, it's definitely a legit thing. Absolutely. So we, we'll see what comes out of that. But uh, be prepared to patch, I can assure you. Yeah, it, it, it does raise the question that how much of the old code is still in the modern platforms? More than you would imagine, I would say. I was just about to say the same thing because most of the the code for NTFS and and the the file system drivers and that kind of stuff is probably kind of unchanged. Yeah, and then look at server like they they can't introduce any kind of big breaking changes to things like AD, DNS, DHCP and and those like old and used really like which every single organization uses, basically. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if quite a lot of that code is still being used in modern operating systems. Uh, yep, that's pretty likely. But thankfully, this code was only up to Server 2003 level because they, they made major changes from XP to Windows 7, for example, or Vista yep. even. So and the same goes for the for the server OS as well. So two thousand eight R two, for example, was very different from two thousand three. Yeah. So that that was a major leap, at least. So ho- hopefully we're relatively safe. But there can't be Windows Server two thousand three servers running out there somewhere, right? Oh. Everyone must have got rid of those by now. <laughs> yeah, in a perfect world, yes. <laughs> So the the funny thing is that uh, Brent Ozar, who is one of the the loudest voices, if you will, in the SQL Server community, he did a session at SQL Bits this week, and he uh, put up a poll: what versions of SQL Server are people using? And the majority, roughly forty something percent, are using twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, uh, and some are using twenty nineteen. And a surprisingly high number of people are still using two thousand and eight or two. Yeah. 2005 and God forbid 2000 and, and when SQL Server 7. So the old decrepit horrible versions are still out there with everything that means. Hmm. Most yeah, most likely the server itself will also be unsupported by now. Because I don't see people, you know, upgrading their server OS um, only and leaving the old SQL on them. So I think those go hand in hand. Most, most often, yeah. Yeah, but I'm running server 20H1 in Azure with my SQL 7 instance running on it. Unlikely. Bad, Simon. <laughs> Bad. Sorry. Simon. Yeah. So speaking of old decrepit stuff, we can talk about your uh, Surface Pro X. Yeah, absolutely. Because your Surface Pro X is now old and useless because... There is a new one out. Yeah, but I would say that my Surface Pro X is very similar to my car. 
like the hardware is still great and it will be getting quite interesting updates like in in the coming months that is definitely true i'm i'm very curious about the x64 emulation support on arm that panos talked about so we can speculate but one of the speculations that why so why don't we have this today which is basically running 64 bit Win32 applications on the Windows on ARM platform. And there mm-hmm. were rumors two years ago or something like that that Intel were actually blocking um, Microsoft from enabling those features due to some patents or whatever it could be. But now they they're obviously enabling that and that combined and I think we I don't think we talked about that in the last episode where we have desktop aperture for ARM 64 or we may have mentioned it actually in the last yeah, you episode ma- you mentioned yeah. it it's quite an amazing achievement that will enable any application to run on Windows 10 on ARM and if it doesn't run Microsoft will help you enable it to run and and I think you can also understand the possibilities with that when you review the um, specifications for the surfaces, the new surfaces that will be available, where, at least in Sweden, only 16 gig versions of the Pro X2 will be available. So they, they have now moved from having Windows on ARM being run like in a very low performance point of view with only really great... Uh, battery performance to now actually being worked like used as any laptop well for that price it better be pretty darn amazing yeah and, and that's still my feedback on my device it's it's an expensive device for the performance you get i absolutely love that it's so sleek and absolutely quiet and so on, but it's a very expensive device for that kind of performance. And I think that's that's still the case with uh, the new ones coming out. And, and funny you should say that because there are up, um, also a new Surface Go laptop coming out. Yeah. And the whole narrative there is the whole uh, empowering everyone on the planet, blah, blah, is now giving everybody a computer. But... I've I've looked at the the specs for this one, and I am not impressed. Sure, the CPU is fine. It's 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 an uh, i five uh, quad core, but why are we still running Intel? Because AMD is probably the better choice for this specific price point. And speaking of price point, who in their right mind? releases a computer, a Windows computer with four gigs of RAM. That's not even funny. That's just insane. So when you look at the price tag, you're going to find that it is $200 more to get an eight gig version. And that is the base one that you need. I didn't even know they made the four gigs memory sticks anymore. My point exactly. So... Yes, it's $579 or something, but that's for a four gig. And no, I'm sorry, it's useless. You you know what I thought about the original Surface Go. <laughs> I really, really don't like the Surface Go because it's too darn slow. I've heard good things about the Surface Go 2 or whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm assuming it's it's the same or similar hardware in the Surface Laptop Go. But yeah, for that price, I see no reason to buy a Surface product, in, in exception of the fact that it's super cool, super sleek, it's it's nice, it's Microsoft, but price performance, no. But but isn't like I wouldn't say that the lack of memory were the challenge with the um, Surface Go. That was the no. The Surface Go was universally crap. Yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> but I think it will run just fine with four gigs of RAM. Yeah, as long as you don't open any applications. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> so you can just have a Windows desktop image you can stare at all day. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, just a quick note. I actually checked these links pretty recently. So there is actually one cool accessory coming also to the new Surface line. Or I'm not sure if it's a Surface exclusive, but Microsoft 4K wireless display adapter. That seems yeah. like a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely picking up one of those. I have two of the full HD ones, and which I... Don't remind really... me again, Simon. How well does the Miracast thing work? Great. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always been working for me. Really, has it? <laughs> so Simon has a bit of a selective memory because the number of times that the Miracast adapters have bitten him in the posterior is pretty high. I must have a selective memory if I only have four gigs of RAM. <laughs> That's a good point. And I think on no, that wait, wait, bombshell... Wait, 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 wait. Before, before we I end... I can't we, end yet. No, we, we can talk about a lot of this. I, I think we need to move back on that. But I want to point out one thing that caught my interest in the Windows blog where they talked about the X64 emulation. If you go further down there, did you see that amazing screen from Lenovo? It was hidden deep, deep down. 27-inch tilting 4K UHD display with digital pen support. And Windows Hello. So that's basically the Surface Studio you have been looking for, but only the screen. Did it say anything about a price tag? We... <laughs> it did. But that's... No, it was... I thought they were a screen only. Sorry, I need to review that day. because the, the 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 thing they linked to was actually an all-in-one PC, and that for that price point, it isn't too expensive actually, or for for the performance. So the Joga A nine forty all-in-one desktop with that screen starts at two thousand four hundred dollars. Not too bad, but why on earth do they still do a in all-in-one crap? I have no clue, but uh, I'm, and that's 32 gigs of RAM and a hybrid drive, 5,400 RPM. Again, <laughs> they they did a Surface. It's actually 256 gigs of SSD as well, but come on. And on that bombshell, it is definitely time to end because I'm going to Go cry in a corner. 
Thank you so much for listening to Knee Deep in Tech. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at kneedeepintech.com. We will be back next week. And meanwhile, take care. Bye. Bye. Ciao.